I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 83 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew, the story to which all of Matthew's gospel has been leading. One detail, one detail could render all of this meaningless. I really don't mean to paint too dire a picture, but frankly, if I didn't believe the story that we're about to read in the scriptures, not only would I not be here, I doubt that I would have much use for ideas like meaning or purpose at all. I've decided to base my entire life on the teachings of Jesus. Why? Because his teachings seem like a good idea? Yeah, honestly, I think they do. But is that enough to base your entire life around some ancient dude? Jesus' teachings are authoritative, meaning he did not offer mystic Zen musings. Jesus did not present haikus intended to inspire unique interpretations across multiple people. Jesus did not suggest. Read the Gospels. Jesus taught an inarguable right and wrong way to live and to act and to talk and even to pray. He argued an objective truth, and he contrasted everything else as a lie. Jesus used really strong language. He talked about darkness versus light. He talked about sheep versus goats. He talked about life versus death. And these are really bold claims, but really lots of people have done that kind of thing throughout history. And all people, religious in the traditional sense or otherwise, believe in a right and wrong way to live and think and be. They base it on philosophy or religion or they base it on science or social justice or politics or some combination of these things. The Buddha claimed to have found the escape hatch from this frustrating cycle of reincarnation that we're all in by achieving something called Nirvana, or Muhammad said that you could get to heaven via good deeds laid out in the Quran, but there are shortcuts like jihad or that you can guarantee your ticket. If you're a dude, you'll be accompanied to the afterlife by a throng of beautiful cosmic virgins intended for your pleasure who will, to quote the Quran, recline on green cushions and splendid carpets. Similarly, Joseph Smith, founder of Mormonism, taught that virgins were to be given as gifts to righteous men who might enjoy eternal astro romance when they become gods in the afterlife, ruling their own worlds, not unlike the space alien god Elohim from the planet Kolob, rendered here in a doodle by Joseph Smith himself. Look at that. For atheists and naturalists, it's more of a dust-to-dust sort of thing. Life is an incredible but ultimately chaotic and meaningless evolutionary fluke. And probably our place in the universe will be gone one day and that's that. Maybe everything will be gone one day and something called the heat death of the universe. If you're looking for a great name for a band, there it is. Everyone has some kind of answer to the plaguing riddle of why. Why all this What do we do with it? Where is it going, if anywhere? Of course, the Bible has an answer as well. And whether you buy the Bible's answer or not, the fact is that scholars and historians who study the Bible, Christian and atheist, agree that the beginnings and eventual proliferation of the tiny grassroots Christian movement are something of a question mark, in that it all hangs on a single event that, for many, is ultimately unbelievable. 
So, shift one aspect of the Bible's story and this movement spanning more than 2,000 years across the globe, ages, cultures, genders, ethnicities, nationalities, shift one specific aspect and it is all a farce. All of our critics would be right. All of our little songs voided, our symbols and traditions, empty pageantry, and the teaching and practice to which we have given our lives all in tribute to a liar and a fraud. To undo Christianity, all you have to do is leave Jesus in the grave. Leave his bones collecting dust somewhere in Palestine. Without today, all this is pointless. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. For years now, years, we've been studying one ancient first century biography of Jesus written by a guy called Matthew. And not to max expectations before we even begin, but really, the whole thing has been leading to what we're about to read. If it weren't for the scenes that follow, there would be no gospel of Matthew. It'd hardly be a story worth telling. Without the scenes that follow, there would be no church, no Jesus movement. This thing, once known to the ancient world as the way, would have vanished the way it appeared in obscurity, hardly a blip on the annals of history, maybe less than that. So let's read the part of the story that changes everything. Look down at Matthew chapter 27, beginning with verse 55. This is where we last left off, Matthew 27, verse 55. Many women were there at the site of Jesus' execution, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now, mentioning someone by name had the same value in the first century as it does today. It's a way of uniquely honoring that individual. Even more so in first century writings when both ink and papyrus were precious, limited resources. So Matthew is acknowledging that though Jesus was abandoned by his friends and his apprentices, these precious few women deserve to be acknowledged and honored for their presence in all this horror. And Matthew depicts Jesus' female disciples as uniquely deserving of that honor. In first century documents, women were often deemed unworthy of mention in historical details. If you remember, even in Matthew's gospel, just a few chapters back, the author doesn't count women in the scene where Jesus fed 5,000 people. It's, he, he wrote specifically, the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. They don't count, so we didn't count them. But here, he writes specifically, many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. And he lists the women's names before the men that come later in the story to honor them in order of their recognized faithfulness. Matthew tells us that many women, not men, cared for Jesus in his death. And scholars recognize this as one of the great arguments for the historical reliability of this particular account. Because if you're a first century Jewish man documenting history, you don't hang the credibility of your testimony on the witness of women, especially when doing so highlights the ineptitude of the male disciples who are actually the ones telling the story. Unless... That's just the way it actually happened. Scholars call this the criteria of embarrassment. If you're making things up, make men the heroes in your first century Jewish context. Make yourself the hero. It would make your story a much easier pill to swallow for the first century imagination. 
But in Matthew's gospel, women anoint Jesus for burial, women follow him to the cross, and women, as we'll see in a minute, first find him afterward and are consequently first appointed to teach the men about what has taken place. The Jesus movement has always recognized female heroes of the faith and thus ordained women to lead the church to the degree that many scholars argue that even without the many female leaders of the church and the subsequent writings of the New Testament, even the story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is enough to elevate women from their lowly first century standing to full equality of leadership and the Jesus movement. Scholar Frederick Dale Bruner puts it this way. He said, some traditional and conservative students of this text will gladly allow women to follow and serve, to pour coffee, but not to lead and teach. But this will not do. Women have been so singularly honored here in this text, and they are commissioned into such an extraordinary teaching ministry in a moment that the power of the passion and resurrection text cumulatively gives women full ministry in the church. And the story goes on in verse 57. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Now, the inclusion of a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph is more than just a factual detail, an aside. Matthew's, Matthew includes in his biography several hardcore teachings from Jesus about the corrupting power of money and possessions. In other words, the rich are not painted in a positive light. It is nearly impossible, Jesus recently said in this story, for a well-off person to enter the kingdom of God. But here, this rich man is willing to spend his money to put his reputation on the line by buying a grave for who was, in the eyes of nearly everyone, a humiliated, criminal, false messiah. One commentator wrote, Joseph represents a member of the community willing to risk his resources for the sake of one in extreme need, namely the crucified Jesus who is in solidarity with the least. Matthew is fulfilling Jesus' promise from earlier in the gospel that though it's almost impossible for a person with lots of money to be saved, this little detail proves Jesus right when he taught, well, with God, all things are possible. Bruner adds, Jesus had promised that a miracle could happen. The miracle of moneyed people dethroning money and enthroning Jesus. The miracle of genuine discipleship. So Matthew is continuing his motif of unlikely people anointed by God to serve Jesus in his hour of need. Women who were unlikely in their cultural context. A rich man who was unlikely in the gospel's context. Someone has to care for Jesus because the people who should be present are nowhere to be found. Remember in the story in Matthew's gospel earlier on, the disciples of John the Baptist come when he's executed and they take his body. But here, Jesus' friends are nowhere in the story. For all they know, Jesus, their beloved teacher and Lord, was brutalized and dumped in an unmarked grave or left on the cross to rot, or cut down for wild animals, as was often the case for the poor, or for criminals, or for those with no loved ones. If Joseph simply provided a grave for a stranger, that gesture would have been considered just a basic act of charity among first century Jews. But Joseph provides a new rock-cut tomb, which one scholar described as a, quote, extravagant act of devotion. 
Look down at verse 59. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. Now, the details may seem weird, but they remind us that Matthew intends to record actual historical events rather than create a legendary mythos. This is not how legends sound in first century writing. The tomb is specifically mentioned as new because otherwise it may have had other bodies in it, which would have making, made a likely case for mistaken identity in what follows. They would say, oh man, a body is missing from this tomb, and someone else would say, well, which one? And that would be the end of that. And again, if you notice, it's the women who are recognized by name. Matthew places the same two women who we've just read saw Jesus die at the tomb. Now they see Jesus' grave and they see him go into it. So they're witnessing the whole thing. Verse 62, the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception would be worse than the first. So there's this brilliant uh, literary flourish here lost in translation from Greek to English. In Matthew's gospel, only Jesus and God are referred to as Lord. So by begging Rome to execute Jesus, the Israel or Israel's religious leadership have given themselves over to the empire. So in verse 63, the religious leaders come to Pilate and more literally they say, Lord, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. Matthew is depicting them as their corruption being made complete. Unless the religious leaders receive the full brunt of their opposition to the kingdom, notice they, unlike Jesus' own disciples, actually remember that Jesus went around saying he would come back to life. Matthew's ingenious artistic way of incriminating everyone, including himself, but Pilate, remember, wants to keep the peace. He wants to get this whole thing over with. So he says in verse 65, take a guard. Pilate answered, go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone, probably a wax seal around the rock and posting the guard. Chapter 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the mother and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. So the Sabbath began at sundown on Friday and ended at sundown on Saturday. This is now the dawn of Sunday morning. And again, it's the women who are mentioned by name. In all four Gospels, Mary Magdalene is the one character in the Gospel story documented with such unwavering fidelity to Jesus, even beyond his death. She was there when he died, there when he was buried, and here she appears again. In Mary's mind, for all we know, Jesus has left her but she cannot bear to leave him. She is, for us, an icon of steadfast faithfulness. And the scene is pathetic. Where are all the people that hosannaed Jesus into the city a few scenes back? Where are all the people who were healed by Jesus? Where the heck are his freaking disciples? Where is anyone? The entire Jesus movement has been reduced to these two women. Verse 2. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now remember, though the story records some pretty incredible events, Matthew intends his biography of Jesus 
as a factual eyewitness account of history. He does not record the specific moment or the intimate details of what happened inside the tomb because he didn't see it. He can only record what he saw or what was communicated to him or what someone else saw and reported. Verse 3, the angel's appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. This is a wonderful bit of deliberate comedy from Matthew. The man inside the tomb was presumed to be dead and is now alive. And the men who are outside and should be alive are like dead men. Verse 5, the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. Now again, something lost in translation here is the angel's emphasizing speech to the women. More literally, he says, Don't you be afraid. The women, as Jesus' disciples, unlike the guards, they have nothing to fear in the resurrection. And the angel calls Jesus the crucified man, which is odd given that previously in Matthew's gospel, Jesus was called Lord, Son of Man, Son of God, King of the Jews. But in chapter 28, his only name is Jesus and the crucified man. Again, Matthew's brilliant subtlety in highlighting the lowliness of Jesus, even in his greatest moment of exultant, victorious glory. The angel goes on in verse 6. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. This line solidifies one fundamental reason that today is the most sacred, most cherished celebration for all disciples of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is not just some outrageous thing that happened. It is the complete validation and vindication of Jesus of Nazareth. Everything he taught and everything he did. He has risen just as he said. If Jesus is raised, then what Jesus said was true. And the God to which Jesus attributed his authority has been affirmed and exalted in this collaborative undoing of death itself. He has risen just as he said. To further validate this incredible claim, the angel goes on in verse 6, come see the place where he lay, which is amazing. He doesn't say, don't you dare ask any questions, take this on faith. He says, come, see for yourself. This was and is the invitation of God in the face of predictable incredulity. Come, see for yourself. Bruner comically observes this. The Christian does not get a lobotomy when he or she makes the decision to be a disciple. Jesus wants his people to be honest, to think about their faith, and to be able to investigate its problems. The angel's command to empirical investigation is wonderfully freeing and rightly heard. It can protect the church from anti-intellectualism. Verse 7, then the angel says, go quickly and tell his disciples. The first commissioned witnesses of the resurrection were women. And again, incredible given that the testimony of women was not legally acceptable in first century Jewish court of law. If you're making this up, put men here. It is, as Paul would later write in Corinthians, God using what is weak in the world's eyes to shame the strong. The women are to teach the men what they have seen and learned from their faithfulness. The angel continues in verse 7. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Meaning this is an actual event in space-time. Jesus was there in the tomb, past. He isn't there now, present. You will see him again in the future. Jesus isn't there. His body is somewhere else. 
Jesus has not been raised in spirit. He hasn't been raised as an idea. His actual dead and should be decomposing body got up and walked out of that tomb. And for all anyone knew, that tomb was supposed to house his skeletal remains until they became dust. If Jesus had been raised in spirit or as an idea, then the angel might have said something like, he's not here, he's everywhere, in keeping with many modern progressive panentheistic spiritualities that argue for God in all things. But Jesus is not there because he has, in his physical flesh and blood living body, got up, walked out, and headed elsewhere. And incredibly, he has the fallen, failed, abandoning disciples in his mind. Not only is Jesus raised, he is faithful to those he loved, even in the wake of their unbelievable faithlessness. And I love how wonderfully unadorned this future meeting is. The angel just says, you will see him there. There's no host of angels. There's no fanfare the way there was when Jesus was born. Who needs them? Simply seeing with your own eyes a man who was dead and is now alive, that will be more than enough. The angel isn't communicating a surreal spiritual phenomena, but an actual earthly event. So in verse 8, the women naturally hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. One scholar I read this week likened this dual emotional experience to what one experiences when getting married or having kids, fear and joy in the same wonderful place. It could have been that in their joy they were afraid that this news was simply too good to be true. But that doesn't stop them from running. And they don't have to wait long. Look at verse 9. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. It is a greeting literally comparable to our English word, hi. (laughs) Jesus is the incarnation of God as evidenced by his victory over death, but he is also a human being who says hi. And those Two doctrines, Jesus as God and Jesus as a man, so precious to the church for more than 2,000 years are again emphasized as verse 9 goes on. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. He has feet. He is a human with a body. But he's more than that because they worship him as God. Then Jesus said to them, do not be Afraid, the single most repeated command in the entire Bible. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. The resurrection is more than God's vindication of Jesus. It is the forgiveness of evil and unfaithfulness. It is the defeat of sin itself. Jesus calls the people who abandoned and denied and betrayed him brothers. Jesus is concerned with relieving the self-inflicted agony of sin. He does not intend to emphasize or ignore it as humans often prefer. He wants to go see his brothers. Now, before we end, I want to do something weird on Easter Sunday. I thought about the way that Matthew depicts the supposed discrediting of Jesus, his humiliating powerlessness against his own torture and execution, Matthew depicts that as the actual enthronement of Jesus. And I thought about the way unlikely characters confirm the truth about Jesus, the faithful women, the rich disciple. I thought about the way that even the villainously depicted religious leaders are the ones who remember that Jesus 
said he would raise back to life. And I decided to read to you guys from a German New Testament scholar and historian named Gerd Ludemann. He's not a Christian, and he does not believe that Jesus was actually raised from the dead. He wrote that, and I quote, the only thing we can certainly say to be historical is that there were resurrection appearances in Galilee and in Jerusalem soon after Jesus' death. These appearances cannot be denied, he argued, before adding, but did the risen Jesus in fact reveal himself to them? How then can we certainly say to be historical the resurrection appearances of Jesus? Ludemann argues for something called the vision theory. He wrote, here's another quote, the appearances can all be explained as visions. Peter received the first vision, which is to be interpreted psychologically as failed mourning and the overcoming of a severe guilt complex. The subsequent appearances of Christ can be explained as a mass psychosis or mass hysteria. And then he concludes, God must no longer be assumed to be the author of these visions, as is still argued frequently. A resurrection of Jesus is so completely unnecessary as a presupposition to explain these phenomena. Now, this argument that Ludemann is putting forth, it is known as the vision theory. It eventually lost steam in scholarly circles because it was well argued that visions of the deceased were actually well known amongst ancient Jews and they were always associated with ghosts or spirits. In fact, visions like that always confirmed that someone was dead. Thus, a vision of Jesus would have prolifer proliferated a belief in, at best, a spiritual resurrection or just that Jesus was dead, rather than giving bizarre rise to the belief of a resurrected corpse. Not to mention that there's no evidence that people ever have mass hallucinations of the exact same thing amongst hundreds of people. And there are actually many, many arguments like these in scholarly circles. One is called the stolen body hypothesis, which is self-explanatory. Someone stole Jesus' body to make everyone think that the tomb was empty because he came back to life. But why would people who stole his body risk their lives and abandon their worldviews for something they knew for sure was a lie with nothing to gain. Another is called the swoon hypothesis. This is a great name. And it argues that Jesus fell into a coma on the cross, was wrongly presumed dead, buried, and then he gathered his wits, he got his strength back, and he walked out of there. But this too loses traction in academia when one imagines the awful, brutalized, septic state of Jesus' ravaged body when he supposedly hobbled out of the grave, malnourished and nearly dead. And you think this guy inspired the unprecedented first-time belief in a bodily resurrection? Or would his disciples who weren't total idiots just have said, uh, you, you don't look so good, Jesus. I do not think you came back to life. And there are more theories like this one. One is called the lost body hypothesis. And it's the idea that the earthquake recorded in Matthew is an actual historical event. And it kind of cracked open the tomb and his body fell in a crack. And they looked in there like it's gone. There's the substitution hypothesis. Jesus had a secret twin who went around claiming to be him after he died, and that was their plan the whole time. I am not making these up. These are actual scholarly arguments. The point is that, obviously, the efforts to explain away the resurrection of Jesus are understandable. We're laughing because they sound funny, but they're understandable. They belong to people who aren't Christians. It makes sense. Ordinarily, dead people don't come back to life. For many... Understandably, that is a very difficult thing to believe. 
But why would people who don't follow Jesus, let alone scholars, historians, academics, why would they feel the need to explain away the resurrection at all? Why not simply say, look, the whole story is bogus, and that's that? Because the details of the historicity of Jesus, on which nearly all historians agree, create this frustrating enigma. Jesus was alive. They all agree on that. He gathered a movement around the idea of a Jewish Messiah. Again, agreed. He was crucified as an enemy of the state and humiliated as a false Messiah. But then Jesus' followers began to worship him. They claimed that he had been raised to life, bodily resurrection, and they worshiped him as God. And this belief spread. It spread amongst those who would know for sure if what they were saying was not true. It spread in a time and place where the tomb of Jesus was well known. Anyone interested could go see it for themselves. It spread amongst believers who, by believing it, put themselves at great social, political, and religious risk and gained nothing. It spread with power and momentum amongst Jewish monotheists who had never believed anything like this who began to worship a humiliated, executed criminal as God himself. Historians don't argue that the disciples didn't actually believe that Jesus had been raised. Clearly, they did. This is well documented, but how? Why? Some have gone as far as to explain it away with mass hallucinations or a secret twin Meaning, for many historians, it's more plausible that tons of people had the exact same hallucination than it is that they rewrote their entire worldviews and threw their lives away for something they knew for certain wasn't true. It's more believable that Jesus had a secret twin, or that he was in a coma, or that his body fell in a crack, than it is to believe his followers made the whole thing up for no good reason. Clearly, Jesus went into the tomb, and with every reason in the world not to believe it, and virtually no logical, practical, or self-serving reason to believe it, people began to argue he had come out of the tomb alive. Theologian Stanley Harawas looks at a story in which two Jewish women clasp the feet of Jesus in worship, and he writes this, Jesus' bodily presence does not prevent Mary Magdalene and Mary from worshiping him. One worships only God, yet they worship him. They had not worshipped the angel who had announced Jesus' resurrection, but they now worship Jesus. These women of Israel, formed by Israel's commandment to worship God alone, worship Jesus. If this is not the Son of God, then they are surely idolaters, but this is the crucified Jesus, the Son of God, who alone is worthy of worship. That they worship Jesus marks the central activity of the new reality of mourning, that is, the church. What makes the church the church is the worship of Jesus. The worship of Jesus will take many different forms across time and space, but where the word is preached and the sacraments are enacted, we know that Jesus is present among us. By baptism and Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, which we'll take in a little bit, we participate in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, making us an alternative to the world. Only disciples of Jesus believe this bodily resurrection. Not in a spiritual eternity in heaven or the clouds, not a, a heaven for souls surrounded by virgins on green cushions, not in reincarnation or nirvana, not in a space god on planet Kolob, not in the heat death of the universe, but in bodily resurrection. 
Resurrection is the creed of time and space and matter. Yes, we are souls and we are bodies. Yes, there is a spiritual realm overlapping the physical one. But in resurrection, God enters matter. He moves his hands in time and space and raises physical bodies up from the grave intended to hold them forever. Again, this from Bruner. God did not need a fetus for the incarnation or water for his son's baptism, a cross for his son's death, or a cadaver for his son's bodily resurrection. God can squeeze water from a stone, but God used all these earthly realities to do the great work of world salvation. Why does Jesus being raised matter so deeply to the the church, the true non-negotiable creed of all disciples of Jesus for centuries all around the world. Because if Jesus is risen, his God is the true God. If Jesus is risen, then the great universal dilemma of death has been resolved. But more than that, the great universal dilemma of meaninglessness has been resolved. God is alive Our story does not end in the tragedy of death, and because of this, the story matters. If God acted in time and space, then we are not alone. Life is not meaningless. Death does not have the final say. And you know, the funny thing about all this is that if I took a poll of this room, everyone here who follows Jesus, and I asked you why, why did you take up with this strange, divisive first century rabbi, I doubt many, if any of you, would say, oh, because of many convincing historical reasons to validate the historicity of the resurrection. Because we are not logic-based computers. God created us with the faculties for emotion and experience and spiritual insight. And my guess is that when most, if not all of you, describe your process of coming to faith in Jesus of Nazareth as king, it would be emotional and experiential, something like falling in love. It would be a story or it would happen over conversations or an evening when God spoke or many years in the presence of someone else who believed a friend or your parents or a mentor. But all of that, even all of that, would be meaningless if Jesus has not risen. But if the tomb is empty, then it makes sense why we come to faith through moments in time, through experiences, through stories, because God has acted in our world in time through a story. Why has the simple, elegant call-response phrase that makes up what we call the ancient Pascal greeting? Why has it become so precious to disciples of Jesus on Easter Sunday? You know, the one someone says, he is risen, and you respond, he is risen indeed. indeed." Because without the resurrection, that tiny moment, that this tiny movement, it would have ended 2,000 years ago. But here we are. Because he is risen, God is alive, death is undone, and everything matters. And in the midst of all our suffering and discontent and the aching and dying of life in a broken world, a defiant refrain rings out like church bells over everything, a reminder and a promise that he has risen and he has risen indeed. And you, why persist in the practices of Jesus? Why show up here amongst these people week in and week out? Why pray and study and seek and ask and knock? Because he is risen and what he said is true. 
What hope is there in a world twisted by injustice, split by racism, marred by political idolatry? What faith is there for the sick and dying, the hurting, the anxious, the fretful, the lonely and discontent? The hope is that he is risen. He promised justice and hope and peace. He promised the renewal of all things. And if the tomb is empty, then he will make everything new, just as he said. If the tomb is empty, we have not been abandoned to our failure and sin, not handed over to the meaninglessness of a cruel and indifferent world. If he is risen, then salvation has come. And you, your life, your story, your family, it matters. You are seen by the living God. You are a beloved daughter, a beloved son of the creator God who has made a way for broken humanity to be reconciled to him in the victory of his son Jesus, all because he is risen. And today is our day of celebration, our day of recognizing with joy and awe and worship that this means something. Our day to cling to the feet of a crucified man, not a ghost, not a legend, but Jesus in worship. Jesus is alive. Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to come and speak and move as we continue to worship. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.